Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are continuing on in our series of messages called Living Hope in a Hopeless World. Peter was writing to a group of persecuted Christians. They were living in a pre-Christian world. The gospel had not yet spread. There were many, many people who had not known about Jesus. And people who were living with Christ were finding that they sometimes were treated like he was. Peter was writing to encourage them with hope. Because what people are looking for, Christians have. We have a hope that goes beyond this world. It is a hope for a hopeless world. And when you get to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, Peter is calling these people to remember the hope of our redemption. And this is the way he put it in 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray for a moment. Father, this hope is real. It is a living hope. It sustains us and encourages us even in the midst of trial and suffering, even in the midst of persecution. There are so many things that happen in this life. We are not yet home with you, but one day we will be. And in the meantime, you have called us to hold on to this living hope and to live out this hope in a hopeless world. Today, Lord, as we open this word, would you help us to see the hope of our redemption? And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, the online news service Reuters had a story of a lady in South Africa who made a series of very unfortunate mistakes. Apparently, she had inherited some gold coins from a relative who had passed away, but she had no idea of their value. These coins she inherited were called Kruger Sovereigns. They were minted in 1890. Now, not only were they solid gold and an ounce of each one and the gold value, but because they were minted in 1890, they had an antique value. It was said that each of these coins was worth a small fortune. But this lady, having no idea of what she had inherited, put these coins in her purse, and city officials later discovered that she had been plugging her parking meter with these all over the city. Pretty expensive time. All because she didn't know the worth of what she had. You know, I was thinking about that this week when I was reading this section about the precious blood of Jesus. And when God calls something precious, it is even more than you know. Yet so many times we forget what it really means to have been saved by that blood. 
we have inherited a great rescue and a salvation from sin and death through the precious blood of Jesus. But many times we don't recognize the value of our redemption. And so what happens is we don't experience the fullness of the way God wants us to live. We, we allow our lives to be used for cheaper, frivolous things because we don't know the worth. It's like we allow our lives to be used to plug parking meters. We're engaged together in a series of messages from 1 Peter called Living Hope in a Hopeless World. As I mentioned, Peter was writing to persecuted believers. They were living in a pre-Christian world. And they were living in northern Turkey. And these believers were spread out across that region, living for Christ, and they were paying a price to do that. And so Peter wrote this book to encourage them to stay strong and to live in the hope, helping them to understand their trials and to find hope in the midst of them. It's a hope that Peter called a living hope because it was rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, a living hope in our inheritance, our salvation that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. You remember in 1 Peter 1, Peter said in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Nothing's ever going to touch your life except God has allowed it. You are shielded by his power. And God has a purpose in everything that touches your life. In the meantime, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, Peter said, as God is growing your faith and accomplishing his glorious purpose in and through your life. And here in this section, he reminds these believers that while living for Christ in a non-Christian world can be difficult, it is more fulfilling, more purposeful, more rich compared with the empty way of life they used to live without Jesus. That's why he said in verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the empty way of life. The word empty there is the word for void or void of result. You put out a lot of energy, but it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't do anything you thought it would. And you and I see people living under this all the time. I've been guilty of it, and so have you. We listen to what the world says we need to be happy, and we chase after it. We listen to what the world says we need to have to be fulfilled. We listen to what the world tells us we got to have in order to be important, or to have value, or to be a success. And so people chase after all this stuff, but it's void and empty. It doesn't deliver. In fact, Jesus said it can cost your eternity. What would it profit, he said, if you gained the whole world and forfeited your soul? People are trading the eternal for the temporary all the time and wondering why they're coming up empty. Peter said, God redeemed you from all that. That chasing after emptiness. He redeemed you with the precious blood of Christ. That's why he said in verse 18, for you know. You know that it was not with perishable things, 
such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, you are redeemed. See, the word means ransomed. In order to need a ransom, that means you're held captive. You've been kidnapped. People, you and I are held in bondage by sin. Satan is a horrible taskmaster. We, we rarely think of it like this, but he is. And we're held in bondage by that sin. If we could see sin for what it was, we would never be tempted by it. In fact, even now, if we see sin as another opportunity to be enslaved, it changes the way you respond to the temptation. It's offering a really appealing argument, but if I go down this road, it's going to end up in more bondage. It would help us to steer away. You've been redeemed from that. You've been bought back from sin. And the word redeemed is written in the passive voice, and that's significant because of what it means is you didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't accomplish it. You couldn't pay for it. It's passive. You couldn't do it. God had to do it. God redeemed you. He paid your ransom price and set you free with the precious blood of his son. That's why Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 45, to his disciples, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid it all. Sin and Satan owned us. We were in bondage to sin, sold to it. So what did God do? God became a man. And he walked into the slave market of our sin. Humanity being sold for the cheapest price. And there was a price tag on every one of us. There's a price tag on me and you. And God picked it up and he looked at the price. And it was not a number. It was a name. You want Larry? It's going to cost you Jesus. You want these? It's going to cost you Jesus. And God said, we'll pay it. We are redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. And Peter writes to tell these persecuted believers, when you know the hope of our redemption through the precious blood of Jesus, it changes the way you live. How do you live when you know the hope of our redemption? Peter said we live in the fear of God. And interestingly, he said we live believing in God. The hope of our redemption helps us live in the fear of God. He said in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Many people are afraid of God. There are very few who fear him. 
Lee Ektoff, a pastor from Vernon Hills, Illinois, was writing about the fear of the Lord. He said, I used to think that living in the fear of the Lord is like driving down the street while you've got the police officer behind you in your rearview mirror watching your every move. But he said, there's actually a better picture for what the fear of the Lord means, and that's this. A young girl is driving down the road. She's new at this. And she looks in her rearview mirror and she sees her father following her. And he's not following her because he's trying to trick her or trap her or catch her in a mistake. He's following her because he loves her. And he wants her to learn, and so he's observing how she drives. And she's hoping that he's going to be... He is hoping that he's going to be able to encourage her so that she drives well, not just when he's in her rearview mirror, but when she can't see him at all. And her fear at that point is not that dad's going to punish me if I make a mistake. The fear that she has is disappointing one who loves her that much. That's the fear that Peter was talking about. The fear of God, not that we are to be punished if we're wrong, but we love him so much we don't want to let him down. You fear him. You love him. You respect him. You trust him. Peter said in verse 17, Since you call on a father... Who judges each person's work impartially? Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. You're calling on the God who's your father, Peter said. Remember that. You're calling on the one who ransomed you, who redeemed you with the precious blood of his son. This is the God who sees everything and judges everyone perfectly and impartially. This judgment is not a condemnation of you. This judgment now is a way that he can find to reward you. The judgment for your sin was already paid for at the cross. God is your father. So now for the believer, this will be the judgment of our father of our works. Works we were created to do. Works that we were redeemed to do. God made us for a purpose. God redeemed us for a purpose, to do the works he prepared in advance for us to do. You remember in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And these good works are what Jesus uses to shine his glory to a lost world. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, the judgment that Peter's writing to these Christians about was not get this suffering right or God's going to whack you. It was the judgment of this. God is there in the midst of what you're going through to encourage you to live for him out of fear, love, and respect for him that he may reward you. 
You see, there are two great judgments coming. No one escapes the judgment. Two great judgments coming, one for unbelievers and one for believers. The one for unbelievers is called the great white throne. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, John, John said, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. You will not be able to hide from this. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. It doesn't matter your standing in life, great or small, rich or poor, known or unknown, everyone without Jesus is going to stand here. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. You want to face God without Jesus? Then you're going to get based on your own merits. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. What's the result? Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. You're spiritually dead apart from Christ, and now you have eternal death because of your refusal to accept him. It's the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, when you believe and are saved, that redemption price that Jesus paid, that ransom, is applied to you. And your name is written in the book of life. But when people don't believe and reject God's redemption, they try to go it on their own merits, or their own religion, or their own good works, or their own whatever. Their names are not recorded in the book of life, because Jesus is the life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So those without Jesus do not have life. They are spiritually dead, and they will be eternally dead. And so they're going to stand before Jesus on the great white throne. And they're going to bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Everyone on planet Earth is going to confess that. And then they will be banished forever. If you're a Christian, you're not going to face that judgment. Your punishment was already dealt with at the cross. What you're going to face, along with me, is called the Bema Seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Is that true of you? I don't think any of us live with a death wish, and God doesn't expect us to, but I find a lot of people, even Christians, trying so hard to hang on to this life, it's as if they didn't have another one to go to. He said we'd rather be away from this one and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the bema seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. See, your name is in the book of life if you believe and accept Christ's blood and his payment as your ransom. 
Now you'll be judged for how you lived for God. And God judges, Peter said, each person's work impartially. The word judge that he uses here is implying not searching for something bad to punish. It's searching for something good to reward. The wise father following his daughter in the car in front of him is not going to go home and point out all the things she did wrong. He's going to look for the things he can say, honey, you did this so well today. You did this good and this good and this good. I'm so proud of you. Keep doing it. God's looking for a judgment of works for reward. And by the way, the reward's not for us. I've shared many times, you're not going to have a reward in heaven greater than Jesus, I guarantee you. The reward is the reward of our works that God has found that have been used by us and him to bring him glory and to shape us. And now he places them in our hands to present to Jesus. People, I can't stand going to a birthday party without bringing a gift. You know the kind of party where it says no gifts required and you show up and everyone brought a gift but you? You know those kind? <laughs> I hate those moments. You feel like such a dork. <laughs> Can you imagine standing before the one who ransomed you with the precious blood of his son? He has searched your life at the Bema seat and there's nothing to offer because your life hasn't been lived for God. That's why Peter called these Christians to live in the fear of God. He said in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Live out your time. Live out the days of your sojourning is what he's saying. Earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. And Peter's telling them, look, you're, live out your time here in reverent fear of God. Love him, trust him, serve him, believe him. And if people treat you like a foreigner, guess what? You are. That's why Peter said in verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. There are many people who are afraid of God, few who actually fear him, who love him, respect him, and trust him. Our motivation to live for God is not fear that we're going to be punished if we don't, it's the fear of the disappointment of letting him down. We serve him because we love him. That's the fear that comes from the hope of our redemption. And not only to live in the fear of God, but the hope of our redemption helps us live believing in God. He said in verse 20, he, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. 
If you've ever driven over the I.B. Perrin Bridge, over the Snake River, north of Twin Falls, Idaho, you will never forget it. It's quite a bridge. If you don't like bridges, you won't like this one. 1,500 feet long, it's about 65 feet wide, and it's 486 feet over the Snake River. When the original bridge was built in 1927, it was the tallest bridge in the world. When you look over the edge of that bridge down, it looks like 486 miles to the river. It is way down there. And it's very popular with jumpers. Now, there's two kinds of jumpers that use the Snake River Bridge, as it's sometimes called, the ones who don't want to come back and those who want to come back and do it again. So the ones who want to come back and do it again jump off with a bungee cord or a parachute. Every year, they have a bungee jumping contest off that bridge. You can Google it and get the information if you'd like to try it. <laughs> Last summer, we were there, and we watched a guy go off with a parachute. We're standing on the observation deck. We stopped at the bridge because our son-in-law, Jeremy, had never seen it. So we stopped there, and we noticed this guy over here, and he's stuffing something in a backpack. He was packing his own parachute. So he puts it in this backpack-looking thing, and he goes with his buddy. I don't know if this is legal or not, but nobody stops him. They walk out there all the time. He walks out over the bridge to the pinnacle right at the peak. Cars going by on both sides. He steps over the railing. He grabs the little bars behind him, and he's leaning out 486 feet over the river like this. Now, watching him do this, my, right now talking about it, my hands are sweating. <laughs> they're, they're, they're wet. And my, Knees are getting weak. And we watch this guy leaning out like this, and then he lets go. He's falling 32 feet per second per second. I'm telling you, man, his body is screaming towards the river. And he's yelling, yeah! <laughs> and he's doing somersaults. And then at the right time, he reaches over and he does something, and that shoot shoots out of his backpack, and he's sailing down there screaming, Yahoo! And he's flying this thing on the updrafts from the river and all the way down, he just lands that thing gently on the shore. And I'm thinking to myself, you have to be insane to do that. <laughs> now, if somebody brought me a professionally packed parachute with a big label on the outside that said, guaranteed to work, and they asked me, do you believe this chute could help you if you jumped off the bridge? I'd say, yeah, yeah, it would. Will you jump? No way am I going to jump. <laughs> you see, I have faith in the chute, but I am not going to jump. That's the contrast that Peter's building here in this verse when he said, you have faith in God and you believe in God. Peter said in verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so your faith and hope are in God. Faith here is a noun. It's something you possess. You have it. 
Faith is the gift of God. You remember Ephesians 2, verse 8? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It comes from hearing the word of God, which reveals Jesus. Romans 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. That's why Satan doesn't want you reading this book, because this is primarily a place where you meet Christ. This isn't just a handbook for life. This is where you meet Jesus. He doesn't want you in here, because the more you get to know Jesus, the more you're going to trust him. Faith goes on to give us confidence and assurance. Remember Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. Faith is a noun, but here believe is a verb. And it may not seem significant because they come from the same root word, but many times they're often correctly used interchangeably, faith and belief. But when they're contrasted like this, it's contrasting the difference between I believe the chute will carry me and I am jumping off the bridge. I have the faith, now I'm putting it into action. I'm showing my faith by what I do. That's the faith in action Peter's describing. That's why he said in verse 18, for you know. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You know this. There's several words for know in the New Testament. This is the word know that means to see. You see now, perfect tense. Right now you see this, so you know that you were redeemed by God. You see it. Not just from the word you know this, but you've experienced this. You see it. Through him you believe in God. The word believe there is you are persuaded. Persuaded to act. So, Peter's telling these people, even in the midst of your suffering, you are demonstrating your faith because in the midst of your trials, you're not shrinking back. You're staying strong for Jesus. You have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his glorification, and it's seen by the way right now you're jumping off the bridge. You believe in God. And I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but wonder, God, does anybody see that I believe in God? Do my neighbors think that? I espouse a faith, but do I live in a way that people say he believes God? Would people say you believe him? Where you work, your neighbors, where you buy your groceries, where you go to eat out, where you hang out at the soccer leagues, would anybody who saw our lives say they believe God? Shows by the way they live. Peter told these people, your, your faith is rooted in the historical life, death, resurrection, and appearing of Christ. You've never seen him, but you believe in him. You don't see him now, but you love him. Your hope is rooted in the gospel. You live in what you believe. That's 
why Peter said in verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so your faith and hope are in God. That's the hope of our redemption. 2014, Tullian Tichavidian released a book called Surprised by Grace. Tullian Tichavidian was pastor in Florida. Unfortunately, he had a terrible moral failure and was removed from ministry. He should have practiced what he was writing. What he wrote was true. In the book Surprised by Grace, he was telling a story of a young woman, a young slave woman during the Civil War who was being auctioned in a slave market in the South. There was a northerner who came to the South to go to the slave auction. And he got in a bidding war, paid a lot of money, and he bought that young slave girl who was on the auction block. And it's horrible to even think of this happening to human beings. As they walked away from the auction, away from where the crowd was, the man who purchased her took off her shackles and said to her, you're free. And she said to him, I'm free? He says, yeah, you're free. She said, am I free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said, you're free. To say whatever I want to say? Yep. To be whatever I want to be? Yes, you're free. Even to go wherever I want to go? Yes. You're free to go wherever you want to go. It said in the book, she stared at him for a while, almost in disbelief, and she said to him, then I will go with you. When that man walked into the slave market that day, he was just another master to that girl. Just another man who was going to pay a price to take her into future slavery. But when the man paid the price and took her away to set her free, the master became her redeemer. That's what Jesus has done for us. God has done that. Our master has become our redeemer. He walked into the slave market of our sin and he paid our redemption price, our ransom, with the precious blood of his son. When you know that, Peter said, it changes the way you live. It has to. You live now out of the fear of God. You fear him, you love him, you trust him, you respect him. You don't want to let him down. And you live to believe in God, to take the gift of faith in God and put it into action in a life lived for God, for his glory. 
People, that's the hope. That's the living hope that we have as believers. So that no matter what we are facing, we know God is in it. And he's in it with a purpose. Living hope in a hopeless world. Peter said, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Father, thank you for this hope. The world does everything in its power to get us to forget this, to lose sight of this, to not believe this. But you said we have a living hope a living hope you want to show to the world. Lord, the trials that we face are not easy. You never said they would be. But they're a blessing when we understand our worst day as a Christian is better than the empty life we were living without him. So Lord, today, help us to see you in all these things to know that you're the Father who has paid our price. And through the precious blood of Jesus, we have the hope of redemption. You paid it all. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.